Today's episode is brought to you by Seku Games, publisher of the RPG card game Nat1. Nat1 provides all the fun of an RPG experience in just 20 to 40 minutes. The game is a funny yet accurate portrayal of everyday campaigns and packs all the fun of a campaign into a nice, short game. This humorous party game revolves around situations with players playing reaction cards they think best suit the situation. Whether they take it seriously or choose a goofier route, it's up to them. The Kickstarter for Nat1 will be live from now until January 18th. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about rules, talking about rule books, talking about what it looks like to write a very clear, concise, excellent set of rules for your game so people can not only learn how to play the game, but actually maybe even enjoy the process of learning how to play the game. Wouldn't that be something if they could start enjoying your game even during the rules explanation, or at least just understand the game well enough to play it? And so we're talking to Mike Lee, pro rulebook editor, who's worked with Buttonshot Games, Angry Cyborg Games. He's edited lots of different rulebooks. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Gabe. Yeah, man, really excited to have you here. You know, rules writing is one of those things that there are very few people that I've talked to, interviewed, run across, you know, at conventions and whatnot that enjoy this. It's not something that game designers are like, oh man, I can't wait to write the rule book. That's my favorite part. Like no one ever says that, you know, it's the design parts, development part that everyone loves. And rules writing is just this like hateful thing that you have to do because if you don't do it, no one even knows how to play your game. And so it's one of those things that people, you know, don't talk a ton about because it's not fun. It's not exciting. It's not, hey, check out my brand new idea, but it is like one of the most vital aspects of game design because if you don't do it well then it doesn't matter how good your game is no one can play it no one can understand it and so really excited just to pick your brain on how to write a clear excellent rule book but before we get into that who are you how'd you get into games and game designing and and rule book editing and all that kind of thing yeah so um i'm in it as my day job and um I got into games, I guess. Uh, I've been playing Magic the Gathering, actually, for probably over two decades now, on and off. But it was during a Magic game night that someone actually brought out the game Coup while we were waiting for some people to arrive. And it just kind of blew my mind that um, here I am, I'm used to playing this game with 20,000 unique cards. And it's just so amazing what you can do with just 15 cards or 18 cards or 9 cards. And so that led me into the more general hobby of board gaming and tabletop gaming. And um, it's been it's been an amazing experience ever since. Very cool. And then what 
flipped the switch for you to start working on rule books and actually working professionally, getting paid to edit rule books? So I guess words have always uh, appealed to me and working with language. Um, sometimes if people are uh, working on like a resume or a important email for business, um, so they would ask me to take a look at it and try to maybe tighten up the wording a little bit, things like that. And so I've always had that interest. And um, there are so many games that are coming out all the time that I just thought, hey, maybe I could help out in this arena too. So I actually reached out to Jason Tagmeyer at Buttonshy. Um, I think they were coming out with um, their game Spaceship. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm just interested in making this the best product that it can be. Uh, one to help people learn the game more easily, more smoothly. And um, is, is there anything I can do to, to help out? And I was actually just going to volunteer some thoughts, but this turned into a full full uh, project for doing the rulebook editing. And in the end, he actually he offered to pay me. That wasn't even part of the thing to begin with. But um, Jason's a really good guy, and he uh, really wants people to be uh, compensated for their efforts. And so um, that was my first gig. Very cool. And trust me when I tell you, you're doing the Lord's work, man, because writing rules is such a difficult thing. It's such a challenging thing, especially for a lot of designers who maybe their brain doesn't exactly work in the way that you, you need it to. It, you know, writing rule books is a lot of technical writing and, and a lot of, you know, very literal kind of things. And like you, you got to be careful with how funny you are in a rule book or how metaphorical you are in a rule book, because odds are you're, you're going to not do a good job of actually explaining the game. And so thank you for what you do. And uh, I'm hoping that there's more people out there that uh, get into this type of business of editing and writing rule books and, and helping companies out. Cause there's so many amazing companies that would probably do a lot better if they had better rule books, you know, their, their games struggle because the rules struggle. And so, yeah, I'm hoping that there's people that listen to this episode and then, you know, can access the uh, amazing resources that you're, you're putting out and we'll get into that in just a minute what, what you're doing, but uh, they'll see that stuff and go, yeah, I could do this too. And they'll start helping out companies and reaching out to them and just saying, Hey, can I offer some editing? Can I offer some advice? And uh, yeah, we'll see where it goes. But before we get into really the, the heart of the conversation, what are we talking about? Like, let's get a good frame for what exactly this conversation is as far as talking about writing rules, editing rules, creating the best rules possible. Like, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to create a great rule set, at least in your mind? I think it depends on the nature of what's already been done for the project. Um, sometimes, you know, designers will have this great game and it's mostly in their minds and maybe they have some rules jotted down somewhere, maybe just an outline of different steps or phases, different actions people can take. And in that situation, they really are looking for a writer uh, who can take those loose nebulous ideas and turn it into a well-structured rule book. But sometimes they're further down the process, they already have a prototype rule book and they're looking for an editor that can help polish things up and tighten things. Um, and sometimes really they might have already been working with an editor or they uh, might just be working on a re-release, another version, and maybe they just need a proofreader that um, 
comes in and just looks for typographical errors, punctuation, things like that. So it really is dependent on the state of the project, um, the needs of the client, and to see uh, what they really need to make the project the best that it, it, that, that it can be. Gotcha. And so why is this important? Like why is, is talking about these things and going into these different details of making a great rulebook, why is it super important for designers and publishers to understand? Well, I think it's something that you alluded to earlier is um, you can have a really great game, but if it's too difficult for people to learn the game, then um, people will often just put it back on the shelf, say, oh, we'll tackle that another night. Let's play this game that that everyone already knows. And so it's about the the accessibility, about people um, that actually get to experience the great ideas, the great mechanisms that the game has to offer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's another thing worth noting as a designer, or even as a publisher, if you've had a, a large hand in the design or development of a game, is a lot of times you can get too close to the game and you don't see the mistakes that you're they're in the rulebook. Maybe information you're leaving out. I'll give you an example. Uh, the other day I was playtesting a friend of mine's game. It's a game I'm looking at maybe publishing and signing. And I was going through the rule set that he wrote. And this is a game about you're, you're a character going to the dungeon fighting bad guys, right? That's kind of the, the basic. And in his rule set, he left out how much health you're supposed to start the game with. And I was like, well, that's kind of a vital piece of information. And it's, it's so easy to forget very basic things like that because you have the curse of knowledge as the game designer. Right? You know all the rules for the most part. They're all in your head. And a lot of times it's easy to forget certain things about the game or how the game works or how different little nuances play out because they're in your head. They're, they're ingrained in your brain. And you need to make sure that you have someone who can kind of come in behind you and edit or, or proofread or whatever, just to make sure you're not leaving out especially vital details, like how much health to start with, you know, how many cards should a player draw when they, you know, draw cards into their hand. All those little basic details are so easy to miss. And it happens to a lot of companies, it happens to multi-million dollar companies all the time where they leave little details out. And so I think this is a really valuable conversation to have and it's just something that people just need to be more aware of. And so as we get into it, you know, you wrote this amazing rules editing style guide recently. Uh, I put it in the Monday newsletter, uh, the Board Game Design Lab, you know, weekly uh, newsletter deal. And it's it's just awesome. It's like 30 something pages. It's ton, I think it's about 10,000 words. And you just go into so much detail, so much depth about pretty much everything that has to do with rules writing and editing and making sure you're doing all the different things to make a rule book as accessible as possible. And so I really just, as soon as I read it, I was like, yeah, I need to have you on the show. Let's talk about these things. And so let's get into that, that rules guide and uh, talking about the big picture things and getting also into the nuanced little details. So let's start off. One of the main things you talk about is cognitive load and just being aware of the cognitive load that your, your rule book, your set of rules is causing. And so what exactly is that? What does that mean? How does it relate to the rules? Yeah, so this is something that I think um, everyone that's working on rules should really keep in mind. Um, it's like the 30,000 foot perspective, right? Because um, ultimately um, the point of the rule book is to help people learn the game. And if you make that, process as easy as possible, then that really helps people not only learn the game, but also remember the rules, the mechanisms, so that when they're playing, um, even that first game experience 
is the best that it can possibly be so that they don't have to continually refer back to the rulebook. So cognitive load is, um, I just kind of defined that as the effort required to learn games and remember rules. Um, and so everything else in the style guide just pretty much um, calls back to that, um, n not necessarily in name, but whenever I'm writing that guidance, writing about those techniques, I always try to keep that principle in mind. How do we make it as easy and stre streamlined as possible to actually l learn the game? Definitely. And so tell me what you mean exactly by cognitive load, like just that phrase, what does that mean in this context? Right. So um, cognitive load is the, what I call the, the effort required to learn games and remember rules. And um, so whenever you're dealing with a, with an issue in, um, in editing, just keep that principle in mind that you're trying to minimize that effort yeah that makes a lot of sense just being aware of how much strain you're putting on somebody's brain as they're trying to learn uh, a rule set and again this is typically the most unfun part of the process and so if you can make it as simple and easy as possible your, your game is going to definitely benefit now one of the interesting things i saw that you talk about is empathy and as a rulebook editor or writer is empathizing with the readers of the rule set. And so tell me about empathy. Tell me why it's important just to be mindful of when writing a rule set. Right. So rule books are, are an interesting case of one-way communication, right? If you consider uh, folks like public speakers and stand-up comedians, folks like that, um, they need to learn to read the room and kind of gauge how the audience is responding to things. In the case of rule books, it's even more difficult because oftentimes you're not going to be there um, in the room helping to teach them the game. They're just going to have nothing else but the rule book in front of them. So empathy in this case has to do with anticipating the reader and what they need and what they're interested in and how to write the rule book so that they can be successful in actually learning the game. Yeah, absolutely. And just being mindful that not everyone thinks like you do. Not everyone learns like you do. And I think that's something to always just kind of be aware of. And so what are some things that a rulebook writer or editor can do to kind of make sure you're you know, hitting different accessibility levels? You know, some people learn better uh, you know, through images, some learn better through reading words, some uh, orally, verbally, whatever. So what are some things you can just be mindful of as you're writing rules to kind of uh, help someone learn, learn your rule set, no matter, no matter how they learn. So, yeah, um, as you mentioned, some people uh, learn better in different ways or using different resources. So um, some people, they're really good with just a very rigidly defined uh, sequence of steps. Some people really benefit from having examples and diagrams. A lot of games, what they'll even do is um, have a separate manual or a separate section that just covers some, some introductory turns of a game and walks you through the process. And so having different features like that in your rulebook or in your game uh, really helps support these different kinds of readers and players and how they learn best. Something else that's really important is understanding that when a reader comes to your rulebook, 
oftentimes they're looking for different things and it can be different readers looking for different things or it could be one reader that might come to uh come back to a rule book looking for different things every time so for example maybe there's a reader that um is about to teach a game to friends um at a game night and so they want a list of key points that they want to make sure that they hit or maybe um this is during a game the reader reopens the rule book because there's some particularly difficult interaction and they just want to be able to get to that particular point and reference that specific rule really easily how can you lay out or organize the rule book to make that sort of quick access really easy yeah that makes a lot of sense now what in your opinion are some best practices on things you want to make sure to include obviously something like a components list you know lists out every single component in the game all the dice the cubes the cards and, and that way people can make sure they have everything and all that. that yeah that that definitely needs to be in there what else though what are some things especially when it comes to the actual rules as far as sections and maybe pictures whatever that you want to make sure you have just as a best practice so um one of the things that i come back to time time and time again in the style guide is that there are very few hard and fast rules um <laughs> rules um there are very few um rigidly defined like laws of rulebook editing right um a lot of things depend on the needs of the game itself and so uh i i've got a section in the style guide about different rulebook sections that are good to include and so for example you often want to start with a thematic introduction that sets the stage and leads people into the world of the game and into the thematic elements. Um pretty early on in the game, uh you want to talk about the overall goal or pretty early on in the style or in the rule book you want to talk about the overall goal. And this doesn't have to be the specifics of how do you score, how do you determine the winner, but just an overall view of the purpose of um playing the game. as you say things like a component list um having a setup section that you, for that you usually want an a diagram of the initial board state after you've set up the game um yeah those are some good things to include at the beginning gotcha okay anything else as far as cognitive load that we just need to be aware of as designers as rules writers No, I think that pretty much covers it. Um it's the just the general goal to have in mind that you want to make the process of learning um as easy as possible. Gotcha. All right, let's move on and talk about framing and the overall like structure of the rule book and and how you're labeling maybe different sections, how you have maybe labels and sub-labels, topics and subtopics, things like that. Tell me about framing. First of all, what exactly is that? What does that mean? And then let's get into how to do it effectively. So framing is um I call that a mental model that people can use to understand a new concept. So no one comes to a new game, no one comes to a new rule within the game with a blank slate, right? Everyone brings with them um all their experiences that have come before. And so in a large in a larger perspective, you can use um things that you might expect readers to already know to help introduce new rules and new game mechanics 
the other thing is um, for an individual rule, you can oftentimes help people learn it by setting the stage and kind of saying, here's the situation with a particular game state. How do we then change that game state um, using this new rule, um, using an action that a player might perform? And so the framing is the context within which that change occurs. And so um, just from the context of an entire rule book, um, the initial frame is really the thematic introduction and then the setup. All of those introductory sections help set the stage, help set the context for everything that's to come after that. Gotcha. Okay. Now, one of the main things you want to have in your rule book is the setup, right? And you want to make sure that that is part of your general structure, typically right at the beginning, maybe in the first couple pages. So what are some best practices as far as the setup? I mean, one of the most important parts of a game is how you set it up. If you set it up wrong at the very beginning, then it's going to be hard to play it right throughout the rest of the time. And so what are some best practices in your opinion, as far as setup and explaining the game right at the the forefront? So like I said, um, Having diagrams is really useful for setup, um, especially if the setup is pretty consistent every time. There's not a lot of randomness in the initial conditions. Having a picture of the game or particular components. So, for example, if people have player mats, um, would they have initial resources or units or different tokens to put on that component, on that player mat? Um, How does that look uh, when it's all set up? and um, just an overall view of the table and how that looks. Um, I think having diagrams like that are good. And oftentimes what you want if you have a list of steps is to have some pointers or have some labels on your diagrams that refer to these specific components. So for example, if you have some D6 dice and you always want them to be Um, placed so the six is showing. Um, Have a step that describes that, and maybe that's step A or B or C, and then have an actual label on your diagram saying, hey, this is what it looks like when you've completed step A or B or C. Absolutely. Another thing I'd like to add on, on top of that is for your rule book setup, make sure the image is viewable alongside the setup words. So for instance, I've played some games where they put the setup like step one, place the board in the middle of the table, step two, grab this deck and do these things. And that was on a right-hand page. And then you had to open the book. You had to turn to the next page to then see the game laid out on the table. And that's, it's just annoying. It's not like a bad thing necessarily. It's just really frustrating when you're constantly having to flip, flip back and forth, you know, between the different pages. It's so much better if the, the game is a diagram or a picture or labeled or whatever laid out on the table alongside step one, put the board in the middle of the table and then you look right there. Okay. There's the board in the middle of the table. I see it. Okay. That's okay. This deck of cards goes on this side. This stack of tokens goes over here. Just being able to see the image alongside the words right there next to each other. So much more useful, so much more helpful than having to flip back and forth. Uh, is there anything else like that with the setup or, or the components list or anything like that with, as far as images go, you know, where you want to make sure the words are right there next to the image, like any other situations you can think of where that's also the case? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, even when you have diagrams and examples, um, they should always be on the same page or on the same two facing pages um, as the uh, text that describes or introduces the rules that are being illustrated by the uh, by the examples. Um, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about organizational structure. You know, how you're laying out your paragraphs, your rules. How do you, how do you organize it? Like, how do you know what to put first? Obviously set up probably you want to go first, but what about what's next? How do you know where to go from there as far as explaining the game? Because sometimes, you know, you need to understand concept C before you can really truly understand concept A, even though A is maybe more important. And so how do you just know how to lay out the, the rule book so that people can actually sit down, read it, and understand how to play? So I say that rule books should generally proceed um, from generalities to details. And in terms of the flow of the game, it should follow a game session from start to finish. Um, this kind of calls back to what we talked about earlier with regards to framing is if we start with generalities that kind of lays a groundwork of understanding, it, it provides people with context. And then on that, we build additional layers of complexity, additional mechanics, and um, we can dig down into the details, but only after understanding the overall structure of things. And so we've talked a little bit about the um, introductory sections of a rule book, for example, the thematic introduction, components, setup, things like that. In terms of actually getting into the gameplay, um, it's more or less a similar process where you start with the gameplay overview. You want just in really general terms, what's the course of the game? How do things play out? And then um, if that is then divided into rounds or turns or phases, uh, then you get into that in increasing levels of complexity or detail. Gotcha. Now, what about when you're explaining a concept and let's say, you know, you've got a very rigid round structure where, you know, A happens, then B, then C, whatever. But as you're writing, you know, for round for um, step A, that you mentioned something else. So I'd say, you know, this, 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 and this, and then that could also lead to combat. Now, combat doesn't happen until later in the round, just based on the, the structure. But how do you how do you handle it? Do you say, and that could also lead to combat explained on page seven? Or like, how do you do that effectively so that you're, you're not introducing all these new ideas, these new terms that are really vague because you haven't explained them yet? You haven't gone into that section yet. What's the best way to do that? I think in that case, it might be good to have a overall summary and then, as you say, have a reference to a later section that goes into more depth. So... Um, for example, if you have a round structure where um, perhaps you have a s setup and then you have combat and then you have combat resolution and then maybe um, industrial development or something like that, and then that round structure repeats itself. Uh, when you're introducing this overall structure, you should absolutely talk about just, again, in general terms, what are the actions that take place during that part of the game or what are the options that are available to players, but just 
at a high level view. You don't really want to get into the details because uh, if you do try to get into the details, you'll lose the point of that section, which is really to just provide the overview. Right. And that's one thing I've run into both personally with my own games and also other games is it gets so convoluted because so many new things get brought up and without ending another one. So instead of, you know, going through concept number one, and then we go into concept two, it's like, we're going to concept number one. Oh, but also number two and then number five as well. And then we're back at number one. And so it gets get kind of confusing sometimes because so many different concepts are being talked about at the same time. And so what's the best way to handle that as far as like, what if you just need to explain something like maybe a definition or maybe like an, like you're using, going to use an acronym or something like that. What's the best way? Should you put it in a, in italics? Should you put something in parentheses almost as an aside, put it in the margin? What if you just really need to explain something really quick, real quick, you know, one or two sentences, what's the best way to display that in the rule book? Yeah. So this is something that um, is relevant to the actual text editing, but it's also um, relevant to the graphical design. And it shows how a successful rulebook is really um, great graphic design, as well as great written rules, as well as great examples. And so um, there are a variety of things you can do. So for example, some games have a, um, a wide margin on, on each page and uh, the, the publisher will put things like definitions of terms and references, and maybe even some smaller examples can go there uh, alongside the rules that they're actually going along with on the main part of the page. And so that prevents uh, things like definitions of terms from getting in the way, but um, they have their own little place. So that's one way of dealing with things. It's also really nice to have a glossary especially if the glossary can be easily flipped to, like it's the second to last page. So they just um, open that um, back cover of the rule book and they can see all the important terms there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've read several rule books that had a very large margin and that's where the publisher put examples of play. You know, if Bob does this and Susan does this, this is how you resolve it. And it's right there in the margin, right next to the, the section of the rule book that it applies to or definitions or designer notes and things like that. And speaking of designer notes, what, what's your opinion on those? Like if a game is, let's say you have a very complicated game and there's certain things that, that the designer just wants you to be aware of, to, to think about, to have the best, you know, play of the game that you possibly can, that they might say, you know, make sure you're aware of these cards. These cards make a big deal in in-game scoring. So just be aware of those. Don't don't forget to, to think about these cards during this that, or the other. What are your thoughts on designer notes and what's the best way to kind of implement them into the rulebook? I think those can be really interesting. A lot of players, especially, I think, well, I don't know if a lot of players do, but for me, for example, I find it really interesting to get inside the head of the designer, so to speak, and uh, have some little insights into what they're, they were thinking as they made the game and the particular mechanisms or strategies that they think are important. Um, I don't think they should necessarily be in line with the rules, but there are many ways to set things apart. So for example, you might uh, put it in a box or have a little element to the side with a different background color to ensure that um, it's clear. And, you know, you can probably label it as well. This is, you know, designer notes or a strategic note, um, but make sure that that doesn't interfere with the actual rules themselves. Um, I think it's important for the rules to um, 
for readers to understand what is a rule and what might just be insights or strategic advice and not allow those to be um, confused for one another. Because um, sometimes if there's a rules dispute, you might point to this thing and say, hey, um, it says so right here, you're supposed to do this. But that was actually just an insight from the designer that this is um, a strategy or it's something that you should keep in mind, but it's not a hard and fast rule of the game. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. When it comes to images and maybe diagrams, charts, graphs, whatever, what are your thoughts on the best ways to use those? Is it possible to have too many pictures? Is it possible to have too many, you know, diagrams showing the, the state of play for these different scenarios that a, that a rule book is talking about? Tell me like the best practices as far as using images to convey information. I think it's a lot more common for rule books to not have enough images rather than having too many. So if you're going to lean on one side or another, I'd say err on the side of having too many. And and over time, as you uh, develop the game, as you play test, especially blind play testing, if people are getting hung up on having too many images, diagrams, examples, things like that, those are things that you can weed out or... Um, things that you can streamline later on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, let's talk about examples in the same regard, right? Is it possible to have too many examples as far as example of how a combat gets resolved or examples of, of how a, an auction works or something like that? Is it possible to have too many examples or or no? Should you just put tons of examples in there so players really understand in-game terms, in almost like story terms, how a certain rule works? So I think there's some opportunity there to be a little clever. And uh, it's, a, it's a concept I think of as coverage of examples. And so you mentioned things like um, the result of combat or the result of an auction or perhaps um, how scoring works at the end of the game. If you're going to devote space in the rulebook uh, towards an, a diagram or, or an example, it would be great to have that example cover many different cases. So it should cover the simple case. So for example, if you if there's a rule that says um, you're going to score one point for every blacksmith that's next to two or more uh, mines. So you can just have a diagram there that has a blacksmith on on the grid that's next to two mines. And sure, that's a reasonable example, but if you can increase the, the coverage and the scope of that example to cover more cases, especially if you can cover some corner cases and some things that might lead to questions, might lead to rules disputes, things like that. So for example, what if they're just touching diagonally? What if there's a blacksmith that's next to a mine and that mine is next to a second mine? Is that one blacksmith considered adjacent to both of those mines because the mines are adjacent? And just uh, look for clever opportunities to have one example that can cover multiple cases. So this means that you don't have to have 10 pages just covering different cases of blacksmiths next to mines, but maybe there's an opportunity to combine some of those examples yeah, I'm a big fan of this method of, of injecting several rules into one 
example, you know, and talk about, well, if Susan does this, then it's going to trigger combat with Bill. And because Bill is next to a mine, he gets a plus one here. And then the combat, and, but like you're adding in multiple levels of rules. And like you said, also, if you can throw in some edge cases or, or corner cases in there as well to kind of explain more specifically than the general rule about how those work, it's even better. And when it comes to edge cases, what's the best way to present those? You know, is this, a, this another thing you should put in like a box or make italics or make bold or something like that? You know, if if this random thing happens just because it, it's the way the game works. Now, hopefully in your game designing, you've eliminated edge cases and you've streamlined things and gotten rid of these. But, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes it is what it is. These things happen. You can't get rid of them for whatever reason. So but what's the best way to put those in the rule book so players maybe can easily find them or can easily understand them as far as edge cases? So overall, whenever you present a rule, you want to deal with the common case first. And so um, let, let's say there's a rule like the, an infantry unit can attack unless they're next to barbed wire because the barbed wire is preventing their um, advance. You want to deal with the common case, the, the, the case where they can attack before mentioning the barbed wire. So don't lead with things like, unless they're next to barbed wire. Um, similarly, uh, especially if these corner cases and these more difficult interactions are unusual, you, you want to deal with those afterwards. So for example, maybe in a separate paragraph. Um, another way of doing things is you can actually have a separate section that deals with clarifications or complex interactions. Um, one good thing about uh, having that sort of FAQ section or complex interaction section is that if people come up against something like that, that's a consolidated place where they can look to find all the answers to those kinds of questions. Um, it goes back to the concept of trying to anticipate what a reader might be looking for as they come to the rule book, if this is in the middle of a game and they just want to refer to something real quick, sometimes it's useful to have a section that covers all the nitty gritty details of the things that can happen in the midst of a game. Gotcha. Now I've seen some games that have multiple books or they'll have, you know, a, a, a normal rule book. And then also like the quick start guide, which is just like a front and back piece of paper that kind of has all the basic rules and things like that. When is a good time to use multiple rule books? And why do people do that? And when, like, what's, what makes the most sense as far as writing my own rule book? Like, when would I want to do that? That's a good question. So um, I think one of the things is have a good conversation with the publisher or the designer. Um, oftentimes they'll know um, having worked with the game kind of uh, what problems players tend to come up against. If that uh, first part of just running through uh, first few turns of a sample game, if that tends to create a lot of issues, it might be good to have this the separate um, book that covers that, partially because having a separate component gives that component some more visibility. So people people might open the box and say, hey, here's this quick start guide. Well, maybe we should start here. Um, a lot of people, though, they like having things consolidated into one larger book. 
And so um, part of that, I think, is just based on the preferences of the publisher, what they're used to doing. So having that open communication between the editor and the publisher, or even the designer, is um, really good. Right. Now, if I'm doing a lot of playtesting and the same questions keep, keep coming up over and over again from testers, is it smart to put like an FAQ, a frequently asked questions section somewhere in the book and just kind of noting these common questions and then maybe explaining where to find that rule? You know, go to page seven, section C, and you'll find exactly how this works. You know, is that a good idea or, or not? I think ideally, um, if something keeps coming up over and over again, there's an opportunity there to perhaps to refactor the rulebook in some way to give more emphasis to the points that are um, causing confusion. Um, ideally, the rulebook should be able to stand on its own. And so if there's a particular interaction that's causing trouble, um, maybe look at that section in the rulebook and see if it could be um, reworded, or perhaps if an additional example or a diagram would help illustrate that point. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to word choice, and just being smart with your language, being concise, thinking in terms of brevity, thinking in terms of accessibility, what are the best practices, in your opinion, about word choice and really making sure you're using the best words possible? So there's a lot that goes into this. Um, one big aspect of word choice is just dealing with keywords. And so there are some general rules of thumb. So for example, if um, there's a particular concept in the game, you only want to use one term to describe that. So if you're talking about an attack phase, you don't want to use the term attack phase generally, but also call it the strike phase or the assault phase, things like that. And you want to be consistent with your terminology. Um, similar to that is if there are terms that users or readers might mix up, you don't want to refer to two different concepts using those similar terms. So something is like, uh, so an example would be um, if you have different player classes with uh, different player powers. Um, you don't want to call one player class traders and the other merchants. Um, or if you have um, one is a, a military class and another is like an attacking class, um, those terms are so similar that you want to find different terms instead. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what about as far as like what person should you write in? You know, I've seen rulebooks use second person. I've seen them use third person. Uh, what's the best practice in your mind? So a lot of this will come uh, back to whether or not the publisher has a style that they pr prefer to use and also what makes sense for the game. Um, oftentimes, third person can seem a little more distant, a little more formal. Um, perhaps a little more rigid, whereas a second person where um, you're saying things like you do this, you do that, whereas you're talking where you're talking directly to a person, that can seem more friendly, more approachable, more familiar. Um, something that I, I've done in the past is for a single player game, for a solo game, um, you can literally think of that as talking to that one player. So you can... Um, write all of your rules in the second person. 
Similarly, if there's a particular card uh, that a player might draw in the middle of a game, that card is being read by one player. And it makes more sense for that card to talk directly to that player. So for example, the card might say, you can now draw two cards from the deck or something like that. Um, It doesn't have to say the active player, it doesn't have to say um, anything about third person because it's just one person that's reading the card. Okay, that makes sense. What about when it comes to pronouns? You know, if a rule says, if a player ever has more than five cards in his hand, he should discard to get down to five. Should they, should a, a rulebook writer put his? Should they put their? You know, do they use the kind of the royal they or something like that? What's the best practice right now? So nowadays it's considered um, m- more inclusive to use singular third person references. So, like you mentioned, uh, words like they and them and their. Um, e- so, even if you're just uh, referring to a single person, to use those terms because um, we want the hobby to be more inclusive, right? And if you just consolidate on always using he and him, you're alienating half of the world, right? Or half of the world doesn't really see themselves in the rule book. So it's just better practice to be more inclusive and to use those uh, gender neutral terms instead. Okay, that makes sense. Now, when it comes to grammar, what are some things for rulebook rulebook writers and editors to be aware of? Maybe some tripping up points as far as you know, uh, grammar is concerned. Because this is the kind of thing where if you don't use grammar correctly, then someone might read the rule incorrectly and um, mess up the whole game. I mean, it, it really is possible you know, considering they're learning how to play the game through these these words. And so, give me your ideas, your opinions, your best practices on grammar usage. So, grammar is important because it helps convey the meaning, right? But a lot of the difficulty that people have, I think, has to do with word choice. And so there's particular types of words that can cause people um, problems. So for example, um, what's the difference between uh, gaining or earning or giving or taking of different resources in the game? Um, If you can establish a lexicon or a system where you are very consistently using these different terms, then a reader, as they go through the rule book, can learn to um, that can learn that a particular term always has a specific meaning and they start to learn these patterns of usage and um, it makes it so that there's less ambiguity. So if you say a particular thing, you always mean a particular meaning. Okay. And then how does that also apply to like phrases and different phrasings of, of things throughout your rule book or even organization, like the way you're structuring everything? Tell me about being consistent. Why, you know, obviously why that matters. Obviously it does matter, but why more specifically, maybe from a bigger picture, why the phrases and phrasings that you're using matters? Yeah. So that gets into something called templating. And more or less, templating is just a framework for writing similar rules across across multiple components. So oftentimes, this will be seen in a a deck of cards where uh, someone draws a card and it has a particular ability. And how are those abilities phrased? Um, What you want to be careful there 
is um, having similar rules always be written with a similar phrasing style, right? So an example is if one card says, um, take one card from the deck, you don't want another card to say, draw a card into your hand. Because between take one card from the deck and draw a card into your hand, you're describing the same thing. The um, intention of that rule is the same, but there's only one word, namely card, that's consistent between them. And so the problem there is um, as people draw cards from this deck of actions and they, they're reading these rules to see what to do, um, it's hard for them to really pick up on potential subtle nuances between these different actions because their brain is so caught up with processing um, each individual word because any given action might be described in different ways. So if you have consistent templating, then drawing cards will always be described in a similar way or perhaps a system of costs versus effects will always be templated in a similar way. And so then people can get used to these structures where if something looks the same, it is the same. And that allows differences between different actions to be more apparent. Absolutely. And this is something I ran into with one of my own games, one of my hunted games, games in the hunted series, where some of my cards in the deck said, take two damage. And then some other cards said, lose two health. Now, that's the exact same thing. If you take two damage, you're losing two health. But it made no sense for those two different things to be said. You only need one phrase, you know, and it gets a little bit confusing because as a gamer, they're playing the game and it says, take two damage. Okay, they do that. And then they draw another card that says, lose two health. It's like, well, was that, is that not the same thing? Like, all of a sudden you're making them question, is this the same thing? Did, did I do the other thing wrong because I thought it was this or that? And, and now all of a sudden the game is grinded to a halt because you meant to say the exact same thing and you did, but you didn't use the same language. You didn't use the same phrase. And so it gets confusing to the game gamer playing, playing your game. And so just something else to, to be aware of uh, anything else as far as templating for rules writers to be aware of. Um, I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, something to be aware of, I guess, is that um, it covers word choice, but um, templating also involves the use of symbols and punctuation. So if you have, um, so for example, I mentioned earlier, uh, if you have a system of costs and actions where in order to take some actions, you have to pay costs, you want to represent those in the same way. So you don't want to say, in one case, spend three colon, draw a card, and in another case, um, two, and then an arrow icon, draw a card. Um, you want your the use of your symbols to be um, consistent as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, Mike, anything else, anything we've left out, anything from the style guide or anything that just kind of pops into your head as far as something else you want to talk about or any other concept that uh, maybe we've left out of the conversation? Ultimately, there's a lot of nuance when it comes to editing uh, rules and rule books. And so I think that's part of why it's difficult to really um, do it well. And um, just speaking for myself, I, I'm always learning as well. And I totally uh, admit that 
this style guide, I tried to make it comprehensive, but I'm under no illusions that it actually is. I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff that I missed out. And so I think we've covered a lot of good points. There's a lot of other details that the style guide covers, but I'm sure there's a lot out there as well that it does not cover. So um, if anyone out there is um, doing some editing work, doing proofreading work, and there's something that's not covered or there's something that um, actually doesn't work if you follow the style guide, because maybe there's some advice there that is either incomplete or it is actually wrong in a certain case. I really welcome people to reach out. I want to make this style guide the best that it can be. I've already gotten a lot of great feedback, um, people pointing out some uh, some examples that aren't that great in the style guide and suggestions for other topics to cover. So I, I want this to be a living document, something that um, will improve over time and continue being a good resource to people out there. So. Um, yeah, there's really a lot to cover when it comes to making a good rule book. And so I like to think of this as a starting point. This is not meant to be the be all end all. Gotcha. And I'll make sure to put a link to the style guide on the uh, Board Game Design Lab website. If you just go to this podcast episode, there'll be a link in the show notes to check out that style guide for yourself. Well, Mike, this has been excellent. Any closing thoughts? Like, what would you tell someone? Maybe they're working on a rule book right now. Maybe they're struggling through the proofreading process. They're struggling through just explaining how their game works. What would be your advice to them? Well, one good thing would just be to um, remember that even if this is just a prototype that you might be pitching to publishers, that having clear rules is really important. Because, again, even if this is just a prototype, the rule book is going to be one of their first really deep dives into the game beyond, for example, a sell sheet or an email or something like that. So to make the best first impression, you really want to have a good rule book. So um, this is not only for proofreaders and editors, but it's also for designers just working on their own rules um, to try to make the rule book as the, the best that it can be. Um, and I know that it's difficult, so don't hesitate to reach out to folks. Um, the board game industry and the, the hobby really is so welcoming and so helpful that oftentimes you can just reach out to your community. If you have followers on social media, if you have a thread on BoardGameGeek uh, for your prototype, and um, you're just having a lot of trouble with a particular rule and how to phrase it, how to explain a particular concept, reach out to people, get some help. Um, if you are helpful to others, people are going to be helpful to you as well. So make use of that community, make use of those connections, and um, just don't give up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the Board Game Design Lab Facebook community also does a monthly rules exchange where you basically go in and say, hey, I've got my rule book, and you send it to someone else and they send you their rule book and you kind of go through and edit and critique and give feedback. And it's just a really great thing that uh, we do every single month. And so if that's something that you're, you know, you're listening to this and you're interested in, make sure you're part of the board game design lab Facebook community and you can be part of that uh, rules exchange. And that's another great way to just improve. Right. And then I know Mike, you also, you, you're part of a discord server for, you know, rule book, uh, aficionados. I don't know what the, the right word would be, but people interested in writing amazing rule sets. And so tell me about that discord where people can find you and all that. Yeah. So um, 
hopefully we can have a link to the Discord in the show notes as well. But um, we, we call it the Editor's Hangout, and it's just a place for editors and proofreaders and writers and even, like I said, designers working on their own rules, um, but with an interest in having better rules throughout the industry, um, just to hang out and discuss um, just general topics, but as well as particular thorny issues when it comes to editing. If you're having trouble with a particular rule and just want to bounce ideas off other people, it's a great community. We have some folks there that are really accomplished longtime editors, and we have some new people just starting out. So um, we have folks at all levels, and um, we welcome people to join. Awesome. Well, Mike, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with uh, more writing gigs, more editing gigs, as I'm sure you'll continue to get more really cool opportunities to work with publishers and edit and write their rule books. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an amazing time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?